Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of On War, the podcast. Tonight, Austin and I extend a previous episode's discussion on democratic peace and explore liberal war theory. Just how can we understand the warlike nature of supposedly liberal states, and why, as citizens of a democracy, do we allow such a nature to continue? Well, we're back again, Austin, after our little uh, two-week absence. Um, and before we get started, I guess I should uh, address the immediate vocal elephant in the room. Some of our listeners might notice that my voice sounds a little bit different. Um, so I'm speaking to you from my brand new Blue Snowball microphone. Austin will be acquiring his as soon as his other uh, scholarly duties give him the space to breathe, let alone go shopping. But I'd like to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters uh, who've made this little bit of an audio upgrade possible, and there's more to come in the future. So uh, the second kind of special admin note to make, a couple of episodes ago, Austin, you might remember me saying that uh, we'd uh, hit 500 views across all of our uh, platforms, and I'm happy to say that only a couple of episodes later we're already crossing the threshold of a thousand so to all of our listeners out there thank you very much for coming along uh, if you'd like to contribute to the show and help upgrading austin's voice to sound as warm and, and rich as mine please do consider visiting our patreon page and um, supporting us through there but cracking back onto the episode uh, today we're looking at liberal war theory and this is a going backwards a little bit to an earlier episode in the show when we addressed democratic peace theory and as austin just pointed out to me in our sort of pre-show briefing we've been taking a very uh, realist kind of perspective on uh, the discussions we've been having recently so austin uh, what do you mean by that i think we've had to um the last couple of episodes we're looking at quite well, real politic i guess would be the term aspects of international relations and the aspects of uh, security, things like uh, responses to terrorism, uh, peacekeeping and the dangers in, involved and some of the, the drawbacks of that, etc. I guess the distinction we have to take is we have to go shift away from that paradigm we had where we can sort of almost discount uh, the influence of international organisations and like. Because when we move over to liberalism, uh, it, it certainly takes a more front seat approach, these liberal organisations. Yeah, so just a refresher for our audience members who might just be joining us for the first time or don't have a background um, in these kinds of concepts. In international relations theory, and it carries over to security studies as well, there are certainly not exclusively, but broadly two dominant paradigms in how these issues are viewed, international politics and security issues are viewed. One, which we've which we've just alluded to before, is the School of Realism, which, as we've said before in previous episodes, um, views the international world as being that there is no dominant actor higher uh, than the sovereign state. That once you get beyond the, the level of a sovereign nation of a country, above that there is nothing, just a, a, a Hobbesian state of anarchy. The international law in this perspective is quite toothless because at the end of the day uh, it has to respect that sovereignty. The other dominant paradigm is, is the school of liberalism, which arises to challenge this. And it does so, uh, first of all, by suggesting that, in fact, that mutual cooperation between the states is possible and that they may form supra-state entities. But there's more to it at play there, isn't there? I mean, this starts as we start to get into democratic peace theory and now into liberal war, there's something more that grows out of this, isn't there? 
Yeah, there, there is. And, and that's because this theory is a lot deeper than it initially looks. When you start thinking about liberalism, it's really easy to get it trapped in this belief that uh, liberalism is this sort of uh, almost naive version of the world. And certainly this neoliberalist such as Kenneth Waltz, for example, um, would argue that it is. The distinction, though, is what we're looking at here is an approach that in, takes into account the existence of norms, of cultural um, and interrelational values that bind states as actors. Now, the most obvious example and expression of those interlinks is these superstate organisations that Alistair's talking about. But even beyond that, there's various, you know, even down to the local level, customs and traditional ways of doing things that interlink our world and interlink relations at all levels between states. And that's really the distinction that we start looking at when we look at a liberalist approach. So when we've looked at this in the past, um, we've talked about uh, this concept called democratic peace theory, which, again, it, it serves to do a little bit of a refresher on. Democratic peace theory was quite popular in the 1990s as, as a way of promoting these, these liberal ideals, particularly the ideals of mutual cooperation, the international rule of law, and broadly of um, a betterment of peace for mankind. It became so popular that it even earned the term, in Levy's mind at least, um, the closest thing to a empirical law as we found in international relations. But it was much more insidious than that, and uh, we talked about this when we covered the episode, but briefly, uh, it was defined quite negatively, wasn't it, Austin? And it was as much about who was excluded from that term of, of, of a democracy, of a liberal democracy, as much as it was promoting any kind of more noble ideal. Yeah, it became sort of almost an enabling um, principle as opposed to what it was theoretically intentioned to be, which was a way to promote peace. What we ended up creating was a, a normative framework under which people could engage in hostilities and, and often quite brutal hostilities as long as the targeted group or the, the other side wasn't considered part of the, the fraternity of nations on the Western front, these liberal democracies, which in and of itself is a fallacy of terms. You know, as we enter the 21st century and through the end of the 20th century, there's more democracies on the planet than not. You know, we're down to single digit in terms of countries with monarchies. But we're still able to conduct hostilities under this democratic peace process by excluding other states from what we call a liberal set of values, which is largely modelled on the sort of neo-Western approach. Yeah, and if I might break back into the sort of harder theory for a second, I've got quite a beautiful quote, I think, from Hart Nagiri describing this in the 1990s. The end of the Cold War gave way to the liberal empire, I substituted liberal in there, um, no longer defined by the powers of nation-states, nor defined by a division between centres and peripheries mediated by imperialist forms of power, but by a decentered and deterritorializing apparatus of rule that operates within expanding and open frontiers. I should correct myself, sorry, part of that is a quote from Hart and Aguirre, and part is from another scholar, Reed, um, commenting on their quote. You'll find the differences in the show notes, I'll correct that. But the point that, that's, that both of um, that all of those scholars are trying to make there is that particularly in, in post-Cold War environment, which is where democratic peace theory and then subsequently liberal war theory uh, comes to um, maturity in, that the world, in their minds at least, can be increasingly seen in this diffusion of liberalism with its probably its most violent edge 
on those open frontiers where the rules are perhaps a little fuzzier. But, like you said, democratic peace theory did explicitly allow the practice of conflict, and in fact was often described as being able to transform conflict from being purely about state interest into almost uh, moral crusades to, I guess the classic version of this is to bring democracy or bring liberalism to the savages. But that's about as far as it went in terms of ad addressing this. It was a sort of a, an area that it, it paid lip service to and then moved on from very quickly in order to promote its broader peaceful ideal. I would say, and we both are engaged in liberal war theory in, in different ways, Austin, so we might have a different opinion on this. I would say that liberal war theory begins specifically to address this this gap, and it starts out life to jump in where the democratic peace theorists have sort of left off. I think in a way that's correct in that they're acknowledging that a gap exists, uh, whereas democratic peace theory really didn't. Um, it was less a matter of them sort of going, oh, this is a problem, but we're ignoring it, and more that it never really appears in their literature. Um, liberal war theory is, is really taking a step back and going, okay, this is what we've been doing, and this is why it's an issue. And I think it's, it is addressing that gap, but it's addressing that gap critically. And I think that's, a, that's pretty important to maintain that in your mind is that this is certainly looking at something we've taken for granted for a long time and starting to put a critical lens on it. Yeah, critical reflection is always important. It was good that they were taking that that the, the liberal war theorists have sort of taken that lens. Although in taking it, they've also perhaps twisted it enough to sort of allow a framework of justification at least. And they do wear this on their sleeve a little bit, but it's still something to keep in mind when you're looking at it that this is a a framework that does does allow for justification as much as an explanation for the, the warlike tendencies of, of liberal democracies. The other thing that I've found interesting in my studies of this is that it's something that really comes to maturity, liberal war theory that is, really starts to come to maturity um, in the early 2000s. And of course, the other thing that's going on in the early 2000s is first the deployment of US troops in Afghanistan and then the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And Within the broader security studies literature, what this triggered was a wave of, of argument from the realist perspective, and even the criticalists in, in, in a certain kind of light, labeling this new interventionism as a, as a new imperialism, as a return to a, a 19th century style of international politics, where the most powerful states could do as they would uh, without paying attention to the broader in, uh, international order. And this is particularly in relations to whether or not Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and the lacking of a UN sanction for the actual invasion of Iraq and so on. And so liberal war thesis sort of, at the same time as it was filling this gap, was also directly challenging this new imperialism thesis. And, and some of the early publications, particularly by Reid, are directly invoking that as an object to be challenged through their own perspectives. But I think it's important to note here that what we're seeing in the immediate post-invasion of Iraq literature is an almost flip of what we are taught to expect in early stages of studying security studies, which is that the realists were actually leading the charge to say we shouldn't go into Iraq and Afghanistan, um, particularly Iraq, um, because it's not in the interests, the geopolitical interests of the states involved. I mean, arguably the US, but certainly not members of the coalition. Australia, for example, had no real political gain to be made by invading Iraq. We're simply doing so because of the basis of the power of A, a treaty, and B, some cross-cultural political norms. Now, 
that is a very liberalist way of looking at it, whereas the realists were saying, this is a terrible idea, what are you doing? Uh, which is very flipped from what we see with people like Kissinger, who love their good old gunboat diplomacy. What liberal war theory, though, does is create a justification based on the way we self-identify and, more importantly, the way that we identify the other, and to, to borrow an Orientalist term, um, in the way that we identify people that aren't part of our society and the way we're willing to apply force to them. And so it's taking that quandary at its state level and really trying to provide an explanation of how we justify it, I would argue, as opposed to being a justification in and of itself. The, the central concept that Austin's discussing here is often termed biopower or biopolitics. To quote Evans, who's one of the foremost uh, theorists in, in liberal war theory, liberal wars are fought on behalf of mankind. So the carrying out of a war through liberal war theories, I and, and quick to point out that not all wars are liberal, but the carrying out of a liberal war is always defined um, in terms of the betterment of mankind or, in fact, to defend humanity or to defend the best of humanity from an, an existential threat to its very way of life. Which is also um, really drawing on some quite old philosophical traditions all the way from the Enlightenment. Um, and it really taking on this sort of crown of civilization that we saw in early actual imperial times in the colonial period and bringing it into the modern context without actually calling it that. But the crucial point here is, I mean, if wars are fought on behalf of all mankind, who are they fought against? So there has to be something going on here that allows a twist to occur, which defines, at the end of the day, who is human and who is not, or who deserves to live and who doesn't. Now, this is an issue that Foucault explores deeply in a number of his works, and anyone who's interested, I'd encourage you to go look at his work, particularly Society Must Be Defended and Security Territory Populations. But I don't want to go too deep into philosophy, as, as this is just a half-hour podcast. What he explains is that this is a, a construct of uh, Foucauldian racism, where the threat to society is being portrayed as inferior or degenerate, and its transformation, or if transformation is not possible, destruction improves the health of the broader societal body. You can think of this as very biological, as liberal war being practiced uh, by the, the immune system of the societal body, weeding out uh, the, the virus or the cancerous elements um, to better the whole of mankind. Unless, of course, you happen to be some of the people who are part of the degenerates. So there's probably a couple of people, well, I'd say a lot of listeners, who are listening to that and thinking, that's really, A, offensive. And B, not something that I would accept on behalf of my government. And I certainly wouldn't think of another person in that term. You know, we have this uh, in, in liberal democracies, we have this sort of visceral reaction to racism. But if I change the words around here and actually show you what this labeling means, you can see how it sort of starts to work. So I use the word terrorist. Now, as soon as I use that word, and we talked about this a little bit when we talked about terrorism and insurgency. As soon as that word is used, it opens up a, a variety of different state options for force that was otherwise not able to be used. And that's a result of this process. So the, the flip side of that, of course, is how does this happen? And to that, we have to turn to a scholar named Agamben. And Agamben's work builds on Foucault's. And what he's principally looking at is how we create this depoliticizing discourse, how we take other human beings who biologically are the same as us 
and manage to put them in such a context where their lives lose political meaning. And he does this through a couple of different ways. The one is the, the imposition of what he calls states of exception. And the other one is the creation of a thing called bare life, where a person's political importance that's attached to their life, their importance to society, is stripped away from their biological life, their actual physical heart beating and bodily functions. Now, once you take away the political importance of someone's life, they can be killed by the state without any further repercussions. Now, that sounds really, you know, quasi-philosophical, but let me put it this way. When we have a terrorist attack in the West and say five people die, now that's a tragedy, but it makes national news. It makes international news. In places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Nigeria, for example, they quite regularly have terrorist attacks occur that kill 200, 300 people, and they barely make our news over here, right? That's because through this process of biopolitical racism or Foucaultian racism, for want of a better term, through what Gambit speaks of, we've created a distinction between ourselves and them. And as a society, whether it's comfortable or not to think of it in this way, we care less about them and violence being administered upon them. And that distinction really is at the core of why liberal war theory functions as a way of looking at the world. One of the more strange, I would say, things that liberal war theory and, and, and liberalist approach to war allows us to, to look at is the concept of responsibility to protect, which is effectively sending armed forces to go kill people to protect other people. So the other thing that R2P allows us to bring up is the um, another aspect of, of liberal war theory. It's not just a, a philosophical perspective. It's very grounded in its parent school of liberalism, uh, and as such, it pays a great deal of um, attention to the roles of, of norms and particularly international laws. So the way Brad Evans terms this, uh, Brad Evans is a, one of the leading sort of theorists in uh, liberal war theory, is that uh, liberal wars are inherently wars of law, not just because to, in order to conduct conflict, they need to shape their own legitimizing uh, normative discourses or international laws. Responsibility to protect being a fantastic example of that, like you said, a, a way of shaping a philosophical perspective that allows us to kill some people to protect others. But also the, the very act of sort of reshaping governance um, and society itself is in, in fact a, a normative and a, a lawful response. So the way he kind of terms this is liberal wars take place, to use Klaaswitz's term, by, by other means. They constantly reinterpret and uh, reframe legal and normative responses in the international order in ways that allows the propagation of liberalism of its, itself. So R2P is one example of this. Obviously, uh, the war on terror is another way of uh, another example of this, a, a way that we've reshaped the legal responses to particular actions or particular perspectives, particular ways of doing governance in ways that legitimizes the conduct of armed conflict against particular groups as a practice of law. All of this is an example of how this philosophical perspective gets translated into more and more concrete, very real legal discourse. What we're seeing here is the use of a state's moral high ground in order to justify policies um, that either warp or ignore international law. Um, and that has certainly developed into military practice. Um, how that looks, of course, in the modern age is, is best interpreted 
by looking at this global war on terror um, and how that's extended beyond simply ISIS and the Flavor of the Month terrorist organizations. And in fact, if you go back to our episode on uh, the laws and norms of war, you'll see several examples we raised there of how uh, the barbarian other has been sort of excluded from uh, the protections that those uh, laws and norms offer. And, and this is sort of the process, liberal war theorists argue, um, that that occurs by. International laws and norms are shaped not only to justify and to protect the the, the liberal wars that these the states uh, in positions of power wish to conduct or wind up unconsciously conducting, but also to legitimate a whole range of action against the um, targeted societies. Everything from targeted assassinations as, um, and drone strikes through to the use of expanding rounds, all of that falls within that, that remit. The final component to liberal war thesis, and I'm extracting these from, from a list of ten characteristics that uh, Brad Evans puts forward, but um, the final very crucial one I find is that the construct, that the framework of threat that liberal war operates in, not the specific wars, uh, although the global war on terror arguably has sort of come to embody this, the framework of the threat that liberal war theory operates in is both global and unending. By constructing the sort of the threat or the problem that liberal wars seek to solve, it has to necessarily transform local issues of governance and emergency, be they a small-scale insurgency or even a humanitarian crisis, into global ones, ones that demand a global response. And this is usually framed in the idea that those outside the the zone of liberal peace should be brought into the fold for their own good. Put very crudely, if, if de democratic peace is the ultimate goal of liberalism, liberal war theory sees itself as the means. A case study of that, if we want to take it into practical terms, would be the two states that have set themselves up in Libya. One is backed by the West and the UN and the other is not. And they control various parts of uh, Libya at the moment. And that's causing quite a lot of economic issue. But what it is doing is starting to bring stability to a region. Um, another example would be uh, the Kurdish organizations that are setting up statehoods um, in the area. Now, those model themselves off liberal democracies. And in a very calculated way, you know, it, it isn't a coincidence by any means that the Kurdish constitution is modeled on the US constitution. It's a tactical move as well as a legal one. I mean, my personal favorite example of this is Al-Shabaab, which for the uninitiated was a, a terrorist organization that was active in uh, Somalia. So Al-Shabaab and its, its precursor organization, the Islamic Courts Union, operated a, a almost Taliban-esque, but a lot less sort of um, shadow government society. They had a working government, and now this was a, a brutal government, and you know it created quite a lot of repression for certain sectors of the community, but it was the most stable Somalia had been for a long time before that. Now, the Western support for the Ethiopian invasion and the collapse of that order is arguable in its effectiveness um, and its justification beyond the restoration of liberal democracy. We should be welcoming them into the fold and working with them to improve the development outcomes for their people in the same way as we work with any other developing state. We don't because we have a fundamental liberal war-based aversion to allowing that state to continue. Now, of course, liberal war theory is, is one sort of perspective on how various conflicts are practiced. And 
and the ways in which um, particular conflicts are practiced. And it's very, very clear from the theorists who propose this idea that it's not the be-all and end-all. In fact, liberal war theory is never intended to be a universal or universalizing theory. Um, in fact, I've got a quote here again from Evans. Liberal war thesis does not deny the existence of geostrategic bat battles. Like security, war can be written and strategically waged in many different ways. Wars can be multiple. So it doesn't preclude other motivations, and in fact it explicitly encourages complex explanations of conflict. And if you've borne through this far into the episode, you're very much aware of how much of a complex explanation a conflict can have. Um, but it's, it's certainly not to be considered a, a universalizing theory of conflict. Wars can be waged uh, towards liberal goals, but they, not, they aren't always, even by liberal states. Yeah, I think that's a good way of explaining it. Where liberal theory stands up and is, is effective is as an explanation for why certain wars are conducted the way they are. And I certainly would advise against anyone trying to simply wholesale cut-paste this theory into explaining just a random conflict you come across. It only really works for certain conflicts and certain protagonists as a way of explaining the underlying causes or the underlying legitimization factors that influence that decision and the way it's perceived. And much like democratic peace theory, it's, it's very one-sided and very exclusionary. By functioning on that sort of negative definition about who isn't a liberal state rather than who is, it doesn't offer any explanations at all from the other side of the fight. So it doesn't help you understand um, the motivations behind the various groups we've talked about um, already. And it certainly doesn't offer any explanations for wars between illiberal states or non-state actors. The final point that's worth um, bringing up here, I think, is and, and my kind of problem, I guess, with liberal war theory, if you could call it a problem, is its lack of a sort of emancipatory kind of nature. You, If you kind of remember back, I, I, I termed, um, if democratic peace is the liberal goal, liberal war theory is the means. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that by legitimizing conflict on the basis of excluding people, I'd argue that it, it doesn't, in fact, respond to that, that duty to act as if perpetual peace is possible. Um, and so it's, I think, perhaps viewed as the means towards the ends of democratic peace, perhaps ultimately self-defeating. I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, Austin. I think that it's inherently self-defeating just because liberal war theory doesn't and, and doesn't pretend to offer a solution. It's an, it's an explanatory theory. It's explaining why liberal states work in the way they are and acknowledging that they're flawed. Evans acknowledges it. Foucault acknowledges that Western democracies and Western states are flawed in their application of power. So does Agamben. So the key theorists of what we're talking about here have all acknowledged that what they're analysing, what they're exploring is a legitimization process which is inherently immoral almost, um, certainly can be used in an unethical manner. So I don't think that it necessarily leads to uh, any, any sort of perpetual peace. I think that the, the link between liberal war as a concept, not as a theory, but as a concept, liberal war, and its end goal being democratic peace, I think both of those are not linked. I think both suffer from... Uh, a disconnect between what they espouse and what the reality is. And I think liberal war theory in and of itself is really good at showing us those gaps and showing us that there isn't actually a direct causal link between a liberal society going to war or intervening and a democratically enforced peace. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for tonight. 
The conversation doesn't have to end here though. If you have any thoughts or feedback, please don't hesitate to leave them in the comment section below, or better yet, start a conversation of your own over on our subreddit. The link, as well as to our show notes, Patreon, and social media pages can be found below. Once again, we'd like to send a special thank you to all of you who have joined us over the past few months and supported the show, either by sharing it, becoming a patron, or simply finding time in your day to tune in. Join us next episode as we take a somewhat lighter tune and highlight some of the blunders and mishaps that have plagued those who have turned to violence to further their political goals. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and have a good night.